Welcome to Trial by Data, presented by Litmus Health, a podcast exploring the data-driven technologies and strategies shaping the future of clinical trials. Each episode, we cover the most pressing issues and questions facing researchers and clinicians today in an ever-changing landscape. We're proud to feature leaders and innovators in the field who are at the forefront of developing and using these data-driven approaches. Welcome to this episode of Trial by Data, the podcast where we talk about the future of data-driven clinical trials. I'm Josh Jones-Dilworth, joined as always by Dr. Sam Volchenbaum, co-founder and chief medical officer of Litmus Health. Our guest today, the last episode of season two, is Harpreet Rai, CEO of Uber Ring, the company behind the wildly successful ring-based wearable medical device used to track sleep and activity. Harpreet is currently responsible for the company's vision and strategy, and he's helped grow Uber Ring to a team of over 150 employees across the globe. We're excited to have Harpreet on the show today to talk about all things digital health, activity data, and the future of wearables. Harpreet, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it, Josh. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. And thanks by extension to our advisor and friend, and I think your investor, Esther Dyson, who has been singing your praises to us for years. Esther's great. Honestly, I'm like jealous. I feel like she gets to do way cooler stuff every day than I do. So she's awesome. We had her on the pod, I think, three weeks ago, and she was just fabulous. And it was a joy to catch up. And yeah, she's always thinking well ahead of the curve. And we call her every time we want to know what the future holds. That sounds about right. Actually, from the, from the I don't know, I, I, I know, I've known her for a while, don't know her super well, but I definitely feel like, yeah, she sees the future. Sam and my co-founder of Litmus Health, Daphne Kiss, who is also our CEO, was Esther's CEO for 18 years. They co-founded and ran and ventured together in PC Forum and did a whole bunch of investing together. So they've been in one form of business or another together for almost 25 years. And so we're just lucky to be in the circle, man. They have a lot of cool stories about the beginnings of the internet back in the early 90s. Pretty cool stuff. Well, Harpreet, we always like to kick off with an icebreaker segment called Informed Consent. And we mix up the exact question we ask in this section. But I'd love to, if you're open to it, play Two Truths and a Lie. Do you remember that from grade school or maybe later? Yeah, no, let's do it. I don't think I was ever that great at it, but let's give it a shot. <laughs> it's a great way to get to know some new people. So why don't you tell us your two truths and a lie, and Sam and I will do our best to guess afterwards. Uh, okay, sounds good. All right, so two truths and a lie. My favorite candy is Snickers. I was cut from the soccer team in high school. Oh, um, sad. And Well, we don't know if that's a truth or a lie yet. And all four of my grandparents had a heart attack or stroke in their early 60s. Oof! Okay, Sam, I think the third one's definitely true. It's like part of a founding story, motivation to get into healthcare, motivation to make a difference. I'm believing that one. What are you thinking? I'm going with the Snickers because uh, <laughs> although I'm sure football was a big sport for Harpeet, I'm going to go with the Snickers because that would be an easy one. He probably, he's probably like a Mars bar guy. So. <laughs> Yeah, an easy one to lie about, right? And I feel like a healthcare, health tech guy probably, yeah. It's like going to candy is like a maneuver. Okay, Harpreet, we think that the football is a truth. We think that the heart attack is a truth. And we think that the Snickers is a lie. Yeah, I man, I told you I was bad at this game. But you're correct. (laughs) Um, My my favorite candy is actually Sour Patch Kids Watermelon. Nice. Yeah. 
there's i feel like i don't know what it is about those things but they're oh. they're amazing i'm so happy right now i made the wholesale switch to mike and ike's sours but really? i also be kept yeah I, I i was a lemonheads guy but but yeah, sour patch kids will do in a pinch for sure but yeah, yeah big sour candy guy right here the, the sour patch watermelon in particular the actual sour patch kids i never ever get the craving for it's so weird the sour patch kids watermelon oh did something something else is in those but uh, yeah. <laughs> try, next time i'll look for mike and i um sour i didn't even know they had that i'll i'll be sure to accidentally See? send some to your mom all <laughs> by data changing lives impacting the world day by day hour by hour Okay, so Har- Harpreet, man, I'm so thankful that you're here, first of all. Thanks again for coming on the pod. You have had a heck of a year. Since last March, as far as I can tell, you raised $28 million in a Series B. You made major headlines at the start of the pandemic for your application of the ring as an early detection tool for possible coronavirus infections. And then the NBA adopted you as part of their bubble in Disney World, and it has kept going. So, like... Hi, and welcome, and congratulations. It's a big deal. And tell us a little bit about the last year. I know it's a lot to cover, but how are you doing? How did you make it through? And surely you've been through an inflection point. It's a pretty exciting time. Yeah, well, thanks. Uh, thanks for recapping our last 12 months perfectly. I, I, it appears you know, appears like a really well-organized you know, efforts on the outside, but you know, internally, there's a lot of you know, stuff you got to throw, paint you got to throw against the wall before you, you, know, before you put the right right foot forward. But no, I think it's been a hell of a year. And, you know, frankly, it's been a hell of a journey and really appreciate, you know, it wasn't just, you know, me, this is, you know, we need a whole team to do all those things. And any one person by himself can't do any of that stuff. But it's luckily I've had a good team, great team behind us, powering us through all of that and and giving us some good insight and collective uh, direction. I'm most interested in the data science piece, right? So you're getting signal off the device. The device is really good at the things that it's really good at, but it took, I imagine, significant operational agility and a big lift from a data science perspective to start to tie some of those measures to endpoints related to coronavirus. And I'm really curious to know your sort of process of mapping one to the other. These sort of digital endpoints or these sort of... These are the holy grail, right? In many ways, when we talk to pharma, when we talk to business, when we talk to government, this is what everyone's after. That's the dream. And you did it this year. So can you tell us a little bit about sort of the the how you went about it and sort of what was hard about it and maybe what was easy too? Yeah, I think the hard part was probably the scale and how to scale a team and how to scale systems. And I think, you know, we're still figuring that part out, right? I think that's I think startups as a whole, by the way, are 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 hard, are hard mainly because of the organization people growth. You know, one you got to figure out sort of what you're doing and is it working. Two, you got to you know constantly if it's working, you got to you know either work on that and grow the team really fast or pivot and grow the team really fast. And so I think those two things, along with sort of limited resources and cash, oftentimes and, and time, oftentimes are I think the ingredients that make a startup hard, but also really exciting. And I think that's why certain people are, are drawn towards it in terms of the data science, you know, what what I would say is actually what's hard about it for a product like ours or a category like ours is it's actually like running three companies in one. It's more, it actually feels like more than that. But if you think about any type of algorithm, right, you have to have it sort of reflected one in some type of science. Like, hey, we need to relate this back to our case, physiology. You know, we're mainly seeing physiological characteristics. Two, you then need to be able to express that science in hardware, 
right? Like, okay, how do you get that into certain types of code and stuff like that that can run on hardware, middleware on the phone, and eventually the cloud? So it's like, you know, you got this whole hardware part. And then three, it's like, oh man, there's a software solution on top that customers see or in, in different ones that researchers may see. And so I think it, it ends up feeling like anytime you got to put a feature out, it's, it's not just like, hey, we're making a game and we're going to launch a new level and, you know, this is what it, you just design it and ship it out to the world. It's like, uh, there's a lot of steps, right? The, the sausage making here is very detailed. And I think that part is perhaps, I think, the most challenging part. In, in terms of the data science, I think there's a couple different approaches. I think one, you already have sort of data from all of your users. So for example, for, you know, COVID and other influenza-like illness, I heard this from, you know, users every year, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of users every year since we've had Aura Ring around, even on Aura Ring Gen 1, you know, Esther had one, you know, because she sees the future, but not many people did. We, we, you know, we had a ring that shipped on a Kickstarter at the end of 2015, um, early 2016, and the ring was much bigger, you know, the battery life only lasted about a night. Mm. And, but even then, we found that first flu season that users would see what we have in, in the app. They're writing a score change. Like some people are like, oh, I'm normally 75 to 85 in my writing scores. You know, some people are like 90s and all of a sudden you get sick and boom, you're 50. And the reason that is, is because we see changes in body temperature, heart right. rate, variability, respiratory rate, and, you know, absolute heart rate changes overnight too. And so, you know, we, those are like almost like half the things in our readiness score. We also look at your sleep the prior night and your activity the prior day and then your sleep and activity over a prior two week average. But we've seen that one in our data all the time. And so getting back to your data science question, you could just argue, you can just comb through your database over every flu season and see spot characteristics of what you think are like the mm. flu. The, the second way to do it is you got to go, you know, essentially train data. I think that's more, you know, common now talked about machine learning algorithms. And so in the case of COVID for us, you know, or, or you know, influenza-like illness, you know, we partnered with UCSF. We were the first wearable to partner with a research, academic independent research organization to do a study on COVID. And, you know, at first we donated 3,000 rings to frontline healthcare workers oh. all across the country. Yeah, we, I mean, look, they're most likely unfortunate to get sick in the COVID wards, right? And obviously they're soldiers, they're willing to do it, you know, men and women equally there on the front lines, right? Battling this virus that, you know, took, is unfortunately taken over half a million Americans' lives. But I think at the same time, it was a great way and a great time to collect data, right? We've never been able to get that kind of data before companies. So it was like, hey, let's get rings out there. So Aura actually donated 2,000 rings. We, we had another donor who came in and funded a 1,000 ring donation. And then we actually opened it to our whole user base as part of the second part of the UCSF study, which happened basically concurrently. And what happens in the UCSF protocol is if it looks like you, you know, you're answering symptom card surveys every day in the app, you know, we see the Aura ring data. And if it looks like there was either a change that you reported, like, hey, I got sick, and, you know, then UCSF would send a COVID test kit, right? <clears throat> you can now have a valid result, you know, a trained, almost like a, a reference data set that, okay, these people for sure had COVID, right? There's people in our database, method one, just look like they get sick, we can model that. There's method two, these are specifically labeled with a gold standard reference data. Was it hard Was it hard to get people to give you that PHI about their own disease? Was it hard to get? I think we were frankly blown away by how engaged our audience is. You know, cool. 70,000 of our users enrolled in that study, you know, for COVID, just to put it in perspective, I think Fitbit said publicly, 
like 220 or 230,000 of their users enrolled. And then I know, oh, they have more, but no, like Fitbit has 30 million active users, right? right? Like we're a startup, we're tiny. And, you know, a significant amount of those are active users enrolled. And so, no, we, I think now we've, I don't know the exact number because, you know, UCSF is still finalizing the second paper, but I think, you know, I think they've sent like well over, you know, hundreds, if not close to a thousand test kits. And so then the third, third way for data science is actually just letting users now sort of label their own data. So, hey, they may not have enrolled in the study or they may not be willing to take the test as you just mentioned, right? But hey, you went and got a COVID test on yourself and you just label it in the app. And so we, we give you an ability, if you hit the plus button in the app, there's a whole host of something we, we call tags. And some of those tags are, you know, positive COVID-19. Some of those tags are flu. Some mm-hmm. of those tags are sick. Some of those tags are actually even now COVID vaccine. And so I think it was triangulating all three of those data sets looking at similar patterns, eventually creating an algorithm is you know, something that we found is, is sort of how we think about it. Being able to do event logging is really smart. It's something that I haven't seen any other groups really doing. And we're, you know, as we're working with different pharma companies on developing, you know, better metrics for their studies, that's one of the big things is letting somebody log, you know, you know, did I fall? Did I wake up in the middle of the night? Did I whatever so that you can start to get a better training data set. So that was, that was great foresight on your part to put that logging capability right into your app. That's great. No, look, I mean, there's still a lot of debates internally, right? Like on, from the data scientist on like, which, what you should look at, which data sets better. Should you take you know, characteristics from all three, essentially, should you just focus on the reference data? Cause that's Mm -hmm. a gold standard. And I would say the one thing though, all data scientists will agree on is, you know, you know what the one thing all data scientists want? Clean data. More data. More data. Exactly. It's like being at a football tailgate. More cowbell. Data scientists want more data. Well, and Sam is always talking about triangulating truth, right? Or sort of a multidimensional view. So if we know from the GPS that you walked around a certain amount and we know your steps and we confirmed, you know, via an EPRO question or some sort of logging event that you did actually go for a walk, then we can start to like believe that it actually happened, even though no one was there to observe it. And so right, but another data point here is that they click on the app that they just went for a run or they went for a walk. Right. That's another way to triangulate in on that. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. Now there's a user, there's a user acceptance threshold thing, right? Like users don't want to feel like they're, they have to do work. So people want that appear, you know, automatically, as we say on our data science team, they love that word. I love it too. So I think there's ways to, to get users to do that more, to encourage people to know essentially like, Hey, contribute your data and helps the whole community. I, I actually think that's the future of Aura and wearables. It's like, you know, so my frustrations, we talked about in the treats and lie. I got cut from the soccer team. If I said football, that's, because I'm used to referring it to as, you know, the Europeans do. As you should. Um, as I should. I, I do watch an English Premier League, so I just feel weird saying <laughs> soccer. But look, I, I think my frustrations growing up and, you know, playing sports, I feel like I had to work twice as hard to be half as good. And like, you know, m- my friend Pete on the soccer team, you know, he could smoke a pack of cigarettes a day and eat all the Sour Patch watermelon kids he want and still run like a, you know, five minute mile. And I felt like, well, if I go do those same things, you know, I feel like if I just look at the Sour Patch Kids that gain weight, you know, why do I react differently? But that's our bodies and that's our health. We're all different. We react to, you know, different stimulus differently. And I think, you know, if you think about how this data can be used, you know, it's us learning from each other. It's something that we see already today in human nature, like, oh, this worked for you. Oh, that worked for you. 
well, what if you can have a data set that says, hey, this is what your data looks like. Here's most likely, based on other people that look like you, you know, physiologically speaking, that this may be helpful for you. It's, it's so it's funny to hear you say that. I mean, it, at one point, was probably six years ago now, Josh, we, we had actually worked pretty far through an idea to build basically a 23andMe for proteomics. And that was the whole idea behind it was like the social aspect of like, here's your proteome and you're a runner. Here's the proteome of a bunch of other runners, you know, if, you know who changed their diet in this way. And so I think you're hitting on something that is really valuable. It's letting people, you know, crowdsource their own data against others. I think that's a fantastic idea. Well, you know, the whole world, the destiny is right. Like the whole world is one functioning, working clinical trial. In fact, all of us, you know, who are taking the COVID vaccine are in a clinical trial, right? Like we're in what is functionally the phase or the phase four, depending on how you count it. And so millions more people are getting the experience for the very first time of volunteering for study. And I think that can only help in terms of broad-based awareness and eventual signups for other stuff. Are you going to, one of the things I was going to ask, I know it's proprietary, but are you planning on open, open sourcing any of your data for other folks to, to mine it? Yeah, I and mean, that's something that we've actually been talking about and want to do. I think part of it is just making the data systems and tools easier. We have done that with researchers really well. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, part of the reason UCSF chose Aura is they're aware of how much granular data we share versus other wearables. Right. You know, wearables have their shortcomings, and there's many of them, and most consumers unfortunately don't know them because... The companies don't want to talk about them, but I think that actually hurts progress in the space. Frankly, so, you know, one of the things like we do, for example, is we send researchers every single heartbeat overnight from our wearables. So like people are like, oh, doesn't every wearable do that? No, Apple only sends you an no, estimate. They do not. Yeah. You wouldn't believe the contortions we're having to go through with our current pharma study just to get data out of the wearable that of course it's not like the raw data but it's better than you can get off their website but it's still far cry from what yeah. his researcher really wants yeah. to see sam yeah. has um sam has an op-ed coming out in stat in i think two weeks that i think the title is like will someone please build the perfect wearable here are the 12 things it needs to do just do this right. <laughs> sam, what are those 12 things well, one, of the, one of them obviously was to you know allow people to get at raw data and not have to you know imagine how that sleep score was calculated, like actually yep. be transparent about it. Yeah, no, we've done that. I, I didn't realize like, you know, we should, would love to talk afterwards too. You know, one of the things we do is we share timestamps of every single IBI and you know, that Apple doesn't do that. Fitbit doesn't do it. Garmin doesn't do it. Whoop doesn't do it. That's correct. Um, you know, and so, and it has massive ramifications for FDA and part 11 compliance and everything else. Like if you can't track provenance, you're in trouble. Right. So I feel like, I mean, yeah, even FDA, it's just like, Hey, is this stuff accurate? <laughs> um, you, you know, I think like most people probably don't realize there's so much shortcomings. Like one of the reasons we show heart rate primarily and heart rate variability at night is because there's so much erroneous data. I, I, you know, I don't even want to call it, you know, measurement. It's really just extrapolation for your heart rate during the day. You know, there's movement when you have these erratic movements or even just frankly, you know, walking or even running cyclical movements there's so much noise in that signal that you, you probably are only seeing about 5% of data, one to 5% of data. And then That's you're extrapolating, right. you know, 95% of did, it. Did you have any trouble like with like the watch manufacturers have told us that the sensors come from this sort of black box market that where they never really know where the sensors are coming from and they can't track them back to their manufacturer. Sometimes do you have any trouble with the QC around your sensors? So we don't, and I think that's another you know advantage of the of our form factor. So mo most of these sensors now, like if you and I want to go start a wearable, it's actually pretty easy on the wrist. So you know what you do is you, you, you we'd go you know 
go up to probably a couple different sort of sensor module providers, like the big ones that, you know, Apple, Samsung, Fitbit all use and, you know, Xiaomi as well. And those are like, you know, the Maxims of the world, ADI analog devices or, you know, ST micro or even AMS out, out in Austria. And, and, you know, what those people do is they actually create a module. So they'll be like, okay, here is an optical heart rate sensor. You know, it has, you know, two green LEDs, two red LEDs. I'm just making this up. And by the way, here is the firmware associated, the code, and here you go. And, and and that's what most people are buying. They're off-the-shelf sort of modules, right? It's almost like the, you know, when you buy a computer, well, that computer has like an Intel chipset mm-hmm. and it has, you know, RAM from, yeah. man, I don't even know who makes memory anymore. Right? Sure. But like, like Hynix, right? A company that makes RAM. I know they're one of the smaller ones, but like, oh, and it has this, you know, this video you know, chip from NVIDIA. Wearables are sort of the same way. It's like, oh, okay, you have this thing. This module came from this manufacturer. This module came from that manufacturer. And it's like a pretty much a lot of the system. So at Aura, what we've done is we've done that all ourselves. Mm. So we actually, you know, use, because you, you can't get modules this small, you know, the ring form factor that popular. And so those module makers haven't really focused on it. And it's sort of, frankly, a lot more of a pain in the butt to make because it's small. So now we're, we actually get LEDs from certain manufacturers. We, we don't disclose that, who they are, but we, we make sure there's system control, system check in there. So I think that's that customization, even though it's a pain, I would say probably helps us. For sure. Yeah. And then the, the other uh, question I had was, you know, the whole fact that you start with, that you go off of baseline data for a, a subject is actually really forward thinking. And I think the other wearable manufacturers have taken a long time to realize the value in that. And that actually probably helped propel your early COVID studies was the fact that you were comparing to people's baselines. Yeah. How did you have that inspiration? I just think that's that's really unique in the industry. I, I, I think it comes back to the individual and personal experiences. Like, you know, my baseline is just different than Pete, you know, who is on the soccer team's baseline. And so it's like, you know, what may be perceived as you know, a low heart rate variability for me may not be a low heart rate variability for him, right? Like he's just going to react differently than I am to the same type of load. And so I think just frankly, if you think about how can these devices in this space be used? Well, have a stimulus, you make a change, you make some different lifestyle decision, health decision, and you see the response. Well, who do you want to compare it to? I actually want to compare it to myself, right? right? It's a little bit like that adage, like, you know, when you walk in the weight room, like, you know, it's not about everyone else. It's just about you. And, and I think learning where you are, learning what works for you, learning what doesn't work for you, right? That's what the journey of health is all about. It's actually yeah. hugely relevant also for the clinical trial space for you know, quality of life endpoints. And I think one of the things that it's been difficult to measure is if you're looking at, say, activity in a cancer patient, if you're a marathon runner and, you know, you're now able to go for long walks, you know, that you know, that may be a significant downstep for you. But if you were sedentary and now you can go for long walks, that's a huge upstep. So so yeah. comparing it to what you started with at a baseline is actually really key, even for simple quality of life metrics. And I just Agreed. think that's something yeah. that we really have to keep pushing. And frankly, it's, I think it's just like the experience of how you use the data, right? So it's like, if I, I'll give you an example. If I eat a bunch of Sour Patch Kids late at night, mm. right? Like my heart rate gets jacked. My heart rate variability is down, mm. right? I sort of sleep, you know, sleep pretty lousy. I toss and turn. If I look at that data and I see that relative change against my prior sort of normal yeah. non-Sour Patch Kid nights, right? That's when I can realize like, oh, wow, eating Sour Patch Kids late at night messes me up. You know, I shouldn't do that anymore. And so I think it just ends up being of like, 
how you want to compare that against me. I, I don't want to compare that against like, I feel like I, we all have those friends or, you know, loved ones who can sort of eat whatever they want and nothing happens. Right. And so like, I'm like, I don't want to compare, you know, their data against me. They can do that. They look fine. You know, Pete could have a six pack and, and, and you know, eat Sour Patch Kids all day long. That's not me. And so it's relevant to compare, you know, how I use this product, how I make better health decisions with, with my reactions to the data. That's great. I would like to thank today's sponsor, Sour Patch Kids. Sour Patch Kids, they're amazing. You should eat them. I'll gladly accept free Sour Patch Kids watermelon. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to send this to the good people in corporate development at Sour Patch and just see what happens. I think one of the things, Harpreet, that you guys are doing that's unique and so cool is you're sort of vertically integrated, right? So there's a there's a data and a data science piece. There's a hardware piece. There's an app piece. Sam and I have spoken to pretty much every hardware manufacturer out there and most like software middlewares or EDCs or CTMSs that have some sort of like wearable component and no one's vertically integrated, right? And even the hardware developers or hardware makers who are supposedly taking the medical research side or the clinical research side of things pretty seriously aren't actually taking it pretty seriously when you get down into the weeds. And so I mostly just want to commend you but yeah it's three startups and one startup it's three companies in one company and yeah. it's quite a lift so good on you and it's great to hear your experiences i think that's part of why you were able to respond to covid so quickly yeah it's i would just say luckily again we have a great team and it's hard and we're still figuring it out you know i don't think we've nailed everything yet but frankly we keep learning and getting better that, that's what's so cool um the, the other thing that strikes me is like, look, the human body is so cool, okay? It knows when it's getting COVID and it has its own way of telling us, to your points earlier about HRV, in a study we've been running with Takeda and the University of Chicago, when you look at HRV at a high level, it wasn't telling us anything, but when we broke it down in a more granular level, it turns out that you know the body tells us when a Crohn's or colitis patient is gonna flare pretty clearly in advance, and it's subsymptomatic, but the body knows and the body tells us with heart rate, and there's so many great examples of this. Actually, the guy who um, came up with the name Litmus Health for Litmus, Dog Kitlaus, who was originally the founder of Suda, yeah. he just launched a new company yesterday called Reva. Yeah. And Reva yeah. uses blood pulse waveforms, not just to look at blood pressure, but to predict all sorts of other stuff you never thought. Of. You know, it's sort of like a, a master key signature, it turns out, for a bunch of other things that will be revealed over time. And I just think that's the coolest thing about the body, that it, it is eloquent in ways that we still don't understand. Yeah. I, by the way, I didn't realize that about, is it pronounced Doug or Dag? Dog is what he says. Dog. That's right. Dog. Yeah. D-A-G. But I, I, I didn't realize he was at, at Litmus before. But yeah, I saw the article last night. Stephen Levy it was fantastic. And that's, by the way, the application for Crohn's, I think we've even seen similar things in our own data. So I don't know if there's a paper that a researcher in Berkeley published at the end of last year. And I think it got overlooked, unfortunately, just because, you know, the attention on COVID, but it was for women's health. And Azure Grant, you should have her on the show, actually, I thought the findings were unreal. And what she showed was by looking at minute by minute temperature data, you know, and also looking at minute by minute, or sorry, you know, beat by beat HRV data, really granularly, and looking at different algorithms, she was able to predict, you know, luteinizing hormone surge, you know, mm. like a day or two in advance, uh, which is unreal, right? Like that has huge implications for, you yeah. know, women's health. And, you know, if you're trying to get pregnant and have a baby, like, you know, when the ideal time is, because, you know, most urine or saliva tests, to, you, you actually don't know till the latter half of the LH surge cycle, part of the cycle. And so, yeah, I think that granularity of that data, training it in, in certain ways, frankly, yeah, we're finding to be more and more helpful than I think we even thought in the beginning. Love it. 
Dog, by the way, is an advisor and named the came up with the name, but he never actually worked with us. And we wish darn that he did full time, but he's an awesome guy and we really appreciate him. Before we get into the rest of the episode, we wanted to take a quick break with our co-founder Daphne Kiss in a segment called The Dose, where Daphne gives us her take on the freshest news from the pharma industry. Daphne, take it away. Good morning. Welcome to The Dose. Today, we'd like to talk about a recent article in the New York Times about how mobile devices are being used to study long COVID, as it's known, which are elevated heart rates, behavioral and physiological changes that have occurred for some patients post their acute COVID infection. And Scripps Research Institute has done a study recently using uh, apparently 234 positive participants who, unlike people with other infections, took close to, on average, 79 days to achieve a resting heart rate that returned to normal. And apart from this you know, important finding about long COVID and the many ways in which people are suffering and this acute infection is turning into a chronic condition. For us at Litmus, of course, it is wonderful and further evidence of the tremendous opportunity to use both devices to capture passive data at the point of experience, as well as to then use patient-reported information to come to some conclusions about long COVID and and its impact. And it is fascinating to think about how COVID has really had such a big impact on our willingness to participate in such studies and sort of how we have historically thought of people having chronic conditions as something that was very, very disease related in our understanding of it. And here we now are in a position to, in an ongoing way, reflect on how some something that has so vastly affected uh, our global society can now be reviewed across geographies, across populations, so easily without all the, the heavy, laborious, um, and, and just so highly selective applications of cl- clinical trials and the methodology that's been used in the past. So it's really a a great evidence of how we really all are, uh, that shift that really has happened where we're all part of a clinical trial in an ongoing way. And some of us may experience certain illnesses as acute, while for others, they become chronic conditions that can be effectively measured and studied for uh, more effective treatment. And that is a very, very big step and something that we certainly um, see offers huge opportunity across studies. Again, not just in the technology, not just in the methodology, but in people's attitudes towards participating and contributing to those events. Thanks for listening. This is Daphne Kiss, and thanks for taking the dose. Cool. So I want to segue maybe just to talk a little bit about FDA since it came up. And I do think it matters. Like, Harpreet, I have to imagine that you're going after FDA clearances. Sam, you talk to different folks at the FDA more or less constantly, particularly around designing data standards. I'm interested to hear both of you talk about sort of what needs to happen from a regulatory perspective. This theme occurs over and over with the pod, but I think between the two of you, we can have a conversation that's pretty unique about roadmap and key success factors. Yeah, I'll go second on that question, so. I mean, you know, the 
you know, we, we've had a, a lot of talks with various folks at the FDA over the past couple of years. And we had Rob Califf actually on the podcast last year, former FDA chair. FDA has made it clear that they want to see mobile data. They want to see it as not just as supporting in studies. They want to see it as the basis of endpoints in studies. And those mobile devices don't have to be FDA approved. They just have to be fit for purpose. And, and I know the guidance changes over time, but our feeling is that pharma shouldn't be afraid of mobile they should be embracing it for their trials. And we're starting to see those floodgates open, but it certainly took a long time to happen. Yeah, you, you know, I'd actually probably agree with everything you said. I think th- there's definitely been more of a interest from the FDA to even, I would say, I don't want to say restructure the organization, but, but propel digital health, you know, you know, more in the and in, in more forward in a greater and accelerated way. So I actually thought some of the EUAs that were put in place during COVID on remote patient monitoring were really interesting. You know, I think we'll see how long they hold, just given, you know, let's see how the vaccine all goes. But I think some of those things were really interesting. I I think, frankly, the FDA to me exists for really good reasons. I think when you go into sort of, you know, the two words sort of every non-FDA device thinks about, that's thinking about going to FDA is diagnose or treat. And I think when you look at those sort of the negative consequences of some of that, you know, diagnose or treat, you're dealing with people's lives, right? If you, you know, diagnose a certain level of glucose, right, or diet and recommend an insulin, you know, you know, dosage based on that, you know, if done incorrectly, someone will die. And I think, hence, like the, this, you know, the rules need to be there. It's there to protect people's lives and their health. And I, I think they're, that, that's, a, they exist for really good reasons. I, I think, I think things like that are more considered sort of no harm. You know, I think there'll probably be further advancements there. Like, okay, well, if you're, what's, you know, what is the diagnose or treat, you know, for a certain condition or how specific do you need to be if sort of the negative consequence isn't that severe? So I think the FDA is starting to think through some of those as the technology adapts and things get better and better, you know, on potentially new ways and new models of doing that. But no, I, I think, you know, we've had interactions with, I think, hopefully we'll have more. So far, all our experiences have been positive. And I would, you know, really commend, honestly, the FDA for even putting together like digital, you know, more and more digital efforts. You know, Bakul has been really cool to see that happen. And frankly, I think, you know, they, they actually went out and made... I think it was like two, three years ago, right? They, they worked with like Google, Apple, others, Fitbit, and some startups too. And they're like, hey, let's actually get a coalition going of specifically when digital health. So it, it seems like there's much more sincere efforts and interest now on how to work. 100%. With these, yeah. Then with this future of health r- rather than just hard stamped, you know, diagnose or treat devices. We very much agree. Like, I think... We would commend them as well. And, you know, it's funny because I think out in the market, there's a little bit of a negative sentiment about the FDA. The blog post or the op-ed I want to write is like, the FDA is the bomb, long live the FDA. My favorite example of this is was researching the use of psychedelics in treating mental health and particularly PTSD as well as bipolar disorder. And turns out in 2018, the FDA issued very clear guidance about what they wanted to see and how to do it and what exactly would happen and how exactly it would go down. And, you know, they're three years ahead of people. And in many cases, folks don't even realize they're, you know, they're on the move in a way I don't think they quite get enough credit for. And that's been proven out over the last year. So good job, FDA. (laughs) One of the things that we continue to be amazed, though, is that even though pharma is starting to embrace wearables more, the same old fashioned ways of running trials are still there. And so I think Josh and I both this year finally agreed that we understand why trials are so expensive because it's like 
I, I don't know, Josh, how many meetings, how many people just to generate these data collection forms. So there's still like this huge old school way of doing clinical trials that I think still has to break open into the modern era. But at least for mobile data collection and for mobile, mobile devices, I think things are starting to really move quickly in the right direction. I mean, I would similarly say, I think it's a culture problem more so than a like actual rules problem. Like the culture yeah. of the people and in the industries, the consultancies, the like CROs that surround the ecosystem for very, for very good reason. They don't want to kill people. They don't want to get it wrong, but there's yeah. a culture that is, that is deliberately slow moving. And I would even say unnecessarily. So what's so, been so interesting for us at Litmus working with pharma is, you know, we sort of come in with a fast moving platform based API. API driven sort of iterative approach. And by and large, like farm has been really happy and excited to be with us in that way and has in many cases bent over backwards to change their own workflows to look more like ours, almost like seizing the opportunity. So it's like a false compliment. Like I've been very impressed at some pharma's willingness to kind of evolve in real time based on the opportunity. And that's been really nice to see too, but bigger picture. Yeah. Like if you look at the documents, the spreadsheets, the workflows, the calls, the agendas for the calls, it's as much a culture thing, Sam, I think, as it is like a nuts and bolts and cross and I's and dot and T's kind of thing. It's a people problem more so than a, than a process problem, if that makes sense. Yep. I totally agree. Well, we're almost near time. And so I want to, I want to wrap up with our closing segment. If you guys are ready for that, is there anything you wanted to make sure to say or ask Sam or Harpreet before I move to close? No, I'm okay. I'm ready to go on the closing This is great. Segment. It was fast paced, high energy. It's interesting because we seem like we're in violent agreement. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so like, hopefully this is a brisk, fun listen for folks. Uh, sometimes the pod has like great disagreement intention. That was not today, but it's kind of nice to move fast and cover a lot of surface area. Sam, anything from your perspective you want to be sure to ask or talk about? Is it safe to buy an Aura 2? You're not going to announce the Aura 3 tomorrow? No. Yeah, we're not going to announce an Aura 3 tomorrow. Uh, so you're totally safe to buy an, an Aura Generation 2. And then the second and question is, did, can... sorry, did you get to go to any NBA games? <laughs> that was, I think we, we were like joking with the NBA team on like, Hey, so do we get to go to the bubble? And they were just like, look, if you go, if you really want to go, let us know, but you can't leave. And we were like, oh, wow, because it was a long time, right? Forget exactly. Like, it was yeah. like over 10, 10 weeks, yep. I want to say. They were in the and bubble, so, yeah. Yeah, so we, I, was, I think we all were like, oh, wow. Like, if we really can't leave, then I think everyone's sort of bad. You're not going. <laughs> but no, I was just going to say, I did actually, you know, Red Bull Racing is, is one of our partners too. And so we had an event with them, virtual event this morning. And they were like, actually like, hey, get, you know, I hope you're ready to come trackside this season. And I, it just didn't even occur to me that, oh, wait, yeah, we're going to, at some point in the future, people will be allowed to gather at an event safely. And, and, you know, I was like, oh, wow. I, I completely forgot about all these partnerships that, that there's like cool, fun stuff that happens. So, you know, just used to watching everything on TV. So, so, so do you think is the like 
pharma clinical trial space interesting to you? Because it sounds like given the form factor and the battery and all the other ways that you were able to up your measurements now, that it would be great to introduce the ring as a potential device for a pharma trial, if that's something that you guys would be interested in. A hundred percent. We're actually, we just hired someone who used to be at Pfizer for four years and, and using for, you know, looking at new technologies to use in clinical trials. You know, so I think for us, yeah, we, we've gotten a lot of traction with academic researchers, but I think, you know, most people in clinical trials probably look at some of the larger device manufacturers just because mm-hmm. they've been around. But given our advantages and the data quality we see of being on the finger, just being a little bit, you know, a more robust signal and more more accurate, you know, and more data, frankly, than things on the wrist, we're, I, I think we're now starting to see a lot of interest there. So we're starting those discussions already. Actually, I think we already have some aura rings out there on some trials right now. But I think, yeah, look, would love to, you know, would love to explore that further. So to the extent that, you know, yourself and your network can be helpful in that. That's definitely an area where we're starting to see more and more traction. Yeah, we're having well, a- what we've seen this year is that there's been such a strong move to virtual and remote trials. Like we had a trial going with BMS that got shut down for COVID. And when we restarted it, it was purely virtual, right? And so they're able right. to do things that they couldn't do before. They're able to do bigger numbers than they could before. And they're much, much more interested in sort of digital endpoints, much more interested in remote monitoring. And so I think the volume is going to be there for you in the next five years to really the money's worth making, whereas, you know, maybe it wasn't a couple of years ago. So that's awesome. And I'm glad to hear it. Sam, I feel like you wanted to say something too. No, I was just going to say, I mean, we have, you know, there's a, on our roadmap, we have a couple CROs and other pharma that we're pitching to. And, you know, we've mainly pitched Garmin because we have access to their very expensive API to get the rawest data possible. But it sounds like we would be able to do even better getting data off your device. And I think that's yeah. really, really attractive. No, look, I, I think we would. In fact, so we did, there's a study ongoing right now with Texas A&M and Phillips and DIU, Defense Innovation Unit. And so if you just search like DIU or Ring, you'll see there's, they did a research study. They actually, you know, Defense Innovation Unit funded for both Oura Rings and Garmin devices on on soldiers and they were able to see an outbreak you know more than two days in advance and a group of soldiers and, and they had garmin watches on and i asked one of the researchers i'm not going to say which constituent so i can that way not put pressure on anyone but it was at you know texas m you know and diu and and phillips right and one of the researchers just said he was like we didn't see any evidence of you know really anything happening from the garmin data but the granularity of the aura ring data was so much higher and we wow were, yeah. that's awesome we, and, and yeah, it was really cool to hear that from someone that has two devices, same data set. You know, uh, I, I almost couldn't believe it. I think, yeah, w- would love to, to extend, explore that further. And, you know, we can talk about that after the call. That's fantastic. That's, I'm, I'm reading the story now. That's great. So in this final question, um, we call it double blind. So welcome to double blind, our closing segment. And I'll ask both of you, Sam and Harpreet, the same question. I'm a genie, okay? And I've just given you, given you this awesome lamp. And the lamp grants you one wish, not three. So it's a little bit discount rate lamp maybe, but one wish to fix a problem in our industry. Like you can change one thing. You can't wish for more wishes. You can't wish for a billion dollars. You can't wish for someone to fall in love with you. You can actually fix something. You can change something in the culture. You can change something in the process. You can change something in the technology. And so what's the one thing that if you could just wave that magic wand, if you could just rub that lamp, if you could make that one wish, what would you change overnight? What would you change instantaneously? What would have the biggest impact? Wow. Question. Yeah, big question. I think from my perspective, taking research findings 
and having them be adopted in the practice of medicine faster. I think the way, yeah, meaning like the way the whole system works together, it, it's not anyone's fault, right? Like, it, you know, but for example, doctors aren't trained to look at wearable data. They're just not, right? The practice of medicine, when they learned, and still, when I went to University of Michigan, if I went to University of Michigan, you know, medical school, they wouldn't bring up sleep. They, you know, they wouldn't bring up things like heart rate variability. They wouldn't even bring up things like, you know, looking at continuous temperature signals, because because that's not the way medicine was practiced is, you know, basal body temperature, you know, one temperature reading first thing in the morning, right? But okay, there's new technology now. So I think taking the findings from new technology, new applications, getting them adopted into sort of the whole healthcare ecosystem, that that's the part that I feel like, you know, we're sort of fighting with two arms behind our back. Yeah, I mean, I, I, that's a huge issue that I deal with here at the hospital because people bring us their wearables data just like they bring us their 23andMe data. And it's like, you know, you're not we don't get any training on how to do that. In fact, we're somewhat disincentivized from using external data because it doesn't have that stamp of approval of, you know, data that were collected in the clinic. And my, the thing I was thinking of actually before you talked for my wish was that we had better access and better trust in external non-clinical data. Because I think that's the next big frontier is data from wearables, from your phone, pollution, traffic, weather, green space, like all of these other data sources are going to be hugely influential in being able to predict and stratify disease. And I just, that's my wish is that we, people start to trust these data sources and use them better. And I think you're the tip of the sword for that, or tip of the spear for that. Appreciate that. Love it. Excellent answers. Thank you, gentlemen, both so much. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of Trial by Data presented by Litmus Health. If you enjoyed the show, please follow us on SoundCloud and visit our blog at litmushealth.com.